I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast, currently in Idaho, where very unfortunately we are going to have to hit the road. We found a really beautiful spot, um, but there's a wildfire, shocking, (laughs) the Dixie fire that seems to be, if not approaching our direction, the smoke is definitely coming our way. Starting to smell a little burned (laughs) up in here. Uh, So we're going to hit the road, which sucks because the spot is really nice and we were hoping to spend the weekend. It seems like the whole summer, uh, so far at least, has been a lot of escaping the heat and the smoke. The smoke is something we're used to traveling this time of year in the West, but the heat has been unbearably horrible, uh, much more so than usual. And unfortunately has basically uh, forced us to cancel. It's weird to say cancel because they were never planned, but not do a couple of meetups that we wanted to do. Um, But very sad to miss all of you who are in those areas. Hopefully we can do these again uh, soon. And especially when we take a bit of a longer van trip. This one is quite short, only two and a half months when they're normally four or five months. Um, But we're planning to go to Europe in mid-August. So this one's pretty short. Uh, Today is a conversation with Tracy Clark Flory, who wrote a beautifully candid and well-written book called Want Me. Um, I actually listened to the audio book. I had a very short window between when I uh, scheduled the interview and when I was going to have the interview, and I really wanted to make sure that I was able to consume the entire book. It's always nice, uh, nicer to talk to someone who's written a book when you've read the book. Um, so I, uh, I listened to Tracy talk into my ear about desire and sex and all sorts of amazingly written, beautifully written things um, for a few days. And I was excited to talk to her about this book. The only downside of reading a book ahead of time and interviewing the author is when you guys haven't read the book because there's some context that maybe is missing. But basically, Tracy wrote a book about desire, female desire, trying to embody masculine desire, male desire, and sort of her journey through all of that from uh, a teen, an early teen, into um, when she became a mother. And I think if you are a quote-unquote millennial or millennial-ish woman, you will relate so, so much to the narrative that uh, Tracy, Tracy shares. I think even she and I are 
sort of experiences were quite different, but I think that her experience growing up and trying to figure out what men want and trying to figure out what she wanted and trying to figure out what the hell the world was, especially as it related to sex, I think is probably the most sort of common trajectory. I think I, I had a little bit of a strange life. Um, <laughs> but even still, a lot of our experiences were quite similar and it felt really good to read someone's account of all of this, of trying to figure out what our power is as women, especially when it relates to sex. And, you know, I think we're just taught in so many ways not to talk about it, especially not to talk about it with the opposite sex. And you're just supposed to sort of know or um, there's just a huge amount of missing information and we're not talking to each other and we're not learning from anyone or being mentored from anyone for, yes, from, mentored by, mentored by anyone. Um, so I really appreciated Tracy's book, not just because it was supremely enjoyable to read slash listen to, but also because I think we need so many more of these stories told in the public realm, um, which is difficult, of course, because we still live in a pretty sexually repressed society. So to share the intimate details of your sexual life or sexual desires um, can open you up to some judgment or some shame. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a lonely place to be. So I really appreciate the work that Tracy does. Um, I highly recommend her book. The writing is so beautiful. Did I say that already? Uh, just really, really amazing. Um, what else? What else am I been thinking about? I've been thinking about this sort of difficulty in living between worlds. <laughs> I was just hanging out with a friend who spent the last year and a half in Costa Rica, sort of accidentally was going there for 10 days for a yoga retreat and then got stuck with COVID and stayed. Um, and this trip just happened to coincide with a sort of quite substantial dark night of the soul that she was going through. And she's just basically been living totally off grid and off the land for the last year and a half after being sort of married and living in a city uh, and living a rather conventional life and having a job. I'm sure a lot of us can at least somewhat relate to this sort of a trajectory, although I think hers was pretty extreme. Um, I think a lot of us ease into living an unconventional life a little slower. And I just had so much empathy for her we we saw her in, I don't know, quote unquote, civilization, somewhere in between those worlds, right? Somewhere in between civilization and living totally out in the woods. And I just, I started to think about my own experience of these two worlds and how when you spend more time, I mean, I've talked about this before, but when you spend more time in the woods, going back into civilization feels more difficult, almost. Um, it's, it's sort of the transition that's the most difficult. And then also, I think, just the removal of a hard shell. <laughs> After living in Cresto and in Colorado for eight months where there's it's truly rural, um, I feel like so much of my the wall around me to protect me from noise and from lots of activity and people and machines and buildings, it just sort of went away. Um, and I'm finding myself more sensitive to things that used to not feel so overwhelmingly hostile. Um, and I've asked this question before, like, I'm not sure if my sensitivity has increased. I'm not sure if just the, uh, the layer between me and those hostile civilized intrusions, um, has just gone away. 
I don't really know what it is, but I do notice that it's very difficult to go in between those two worlds. And I, I just, I don't have a solution for this problem. Um, I think a lot of us <laughs> feel this way. And I just sort of wanted to give voice to that difficulty, the, the, the difficulty of wanting maybe so badly to totally check out um, and live in the middle of nowhere and not have to talk to a ton of people or hear what you may be hearing behind me right now, which is the sound of cars driving past our campsite. Um, I understand the desire to do that basically all the time because I have that desire for sure. Uh, and yet if I want to talk to all of you, and I want to keep in touch with people. Um, and I want to be engaged in the world as the world is constructed. I have to move between these two places. And it's difficult. Um, and I think sometimes I try to f find a solution and maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's just to acknowledge that it's difficult. And maybe the sort of living between worlds is not so much so different than you know, some sort of metaphorical or mythological example of, you know, living in day psychology versus night psychology or in the underworld and the, the mortal living world. It's hard. It's kind of like full-time psychopomping or something. I applaud anyone who knows what that means. Um, okay. I think that's all I have to say. Uh, we are we, as in my Patreon community, are in the middle of reading Women Who Run With The Wolves right now as part of our book club, and it is so good. I am so glad that we're reading this, and I cannot wait to talk about it with all of you. Um, if you would like to join our book club, which happens about four to five times a year, plus participate in our community Discord server, get access to patron-led workshops or workshops taught by former guests of the podcast. There are so many different perks that I offer um, for a small monthly donation, and you can find more information about that at patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, would love to have you as a part of the group. Every, I feel like so often now I'm getting um, accounts or photos of you all meeting each other and this is all happening by way of the Patreon community and it makes me so thrilled to kind of see all of these like digital <laughs> tendrils come together in real life. I feel like I just called you all digital tendrils, um, but you know what I mean, these sort of far away, uh, not in person, in the digital space connections um, actually coming into real life <laughs> and, um, having you all meet each other, having me meeting you guys, you guys meeting me, et cetera, et cetera. It's just so cool to see. And I'm excited to see all of this grow. So if you live in Boise, please come to the meetup. And I think we're hoping, planning maybe to do one in Colorado as well, but all of that information again can be found at anyacots.com slash podcast dash meetups. Okay. I am going to play you in today with a song called Unravel Me, um, which is actually a song about someone who cannot be unraveled. Uh, and it's funny, I always, I never really get to play sexual songs on this podcast. I feel like most of them are reserved for Horrorpore, which if you have not listened to Horrorpore, I have a second podcast that I host with my friend Erin, and uh, we have different conversations about sexuality, everything from desire to power to gender to non-monogamy, to sexual orientation. Um, we just did one about fear and eroticism. 
uh, dating. We talk about a lot of things, and I'm constantly thinking of more things that we could talk about. Uh, but if you want to hear more candid conversations about sexuality, um, I definitely recommend listening to Horror not to mention all of the sexiest sexually themed songs. But here's one for this podcast, because this podcast has something to do with desire. So thank you, Tracy, for letting me play a sex song, um, or at least a sexy song. Anyway, the song is about uh, that someone could never unravel the woman singing, Sabrina Claudio. But I'd like to normalize being unraveled. I'd like to normalize intimacy and letting people see in safe relationships, of course, safe dynamics, the very, very, very inside, most intimate parts about us. I think we need to do more of this. I think we need to open up to people. I think we need to see if we can trust someone by leaping headfirst, being unraveled, showing yourself to somebody else. This is the world I know we'd all like to live in. <laughs> and uh, to some extent, it's up to all of us to make that happen and to create spaces for other people to open up and be unraveled as well. So please enjoy the song and this conversation, and I'll catch you on the other side. Something in the sun or the air. It's making me want to run away from here. I know that you want me to stay with you, but no So I keep on making excuses about the sun, the earth, the rays of days I'm numb, but why?
All right. I am here with Tracy. I am really excited to have this conversation with you. I've I like just binge li- binge listened to your book on oh, audiobook nice. over the past week because I really <laughs> wanted to finish it before we had the conversation. I was like, if I read, it'll never happen. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you've just been like in my brain for for the past week. So now you're in my brain, but in real life. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and I just I feel like I just first wanted to like applaud your vulnerability um, and you. how candid you were in this, and I'm. I'm interested as someone like with a platform who talks about sexuality and I'm always sort of like, I don't know, thinking about what do I want to share? Like, what should I keep private? Like, what is privacy? (laughs) Um, And I'm just curious after putting this out into the world, how it felt for you. Like, was it some sort of sense of release and freedom or did you feel a little bit like, I don't know, almost hemmed in by it to like the specific narrative or like, oh my God, everyone thinks I'm just this book now. I'm just right. curious what that was like. <laughs> it's honestly, it's kind of been a mix of a lot of those things. Like I think I felt really freed up in a lot of ways because I feel like I put it all out there. And so I feel like released in this way. Like, you know, I've, I've shared this part of myself that you know, I hadn't shared even with many close friends. Like I've had close friends who've Mm. like read the book and been like, wow, I've learned so much about you. (laughs) And these are like people I've had really, you know, intimate relationships with, but there's just, um, there's stuff you don't necessarily talk about or cover in day-to-day friendship and conversation. And so, um, in a way it felt like this sort of coming out and there was a lot of, um, there was relief in that, but then there's also just the reality of writing a book like this and having family members read it, you know, and like talking to family members who admit like that it was kind of hard for them to read or that it felt like, you know, TMI at points and that they had to, you know, put it down and take a break. And, um, so it's definitely, it's weird sharing these things that most people don't share um, and incorporating that in your life, like on a friend level, a family level, a professional level. Um, but overall, I would say there is that feeling of release because I, I think I've always, I always just like hunger for real talk. Like I, I hunger for like honest conversation where people really yeah. say what they feel and what they experience. And so, um, it's also like paved the way for conversations with friends about their own experiences that I never would have had otherwise. So it's, it's scary, but worth it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it also sort of speaks to like, you've spent your life writing about sex and still there was this other narrative that you felt called to tell. Right. And like, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of noise that goes around in our culture as far as like quote unquote talking about sexuality. But I felt like your book portrayed really perfectly that like even for someone that lives in that world and is like expressing them th- themselves like through the the language of sex and the framework of sex, um, I often think it's like we need more people telling those sorts of personal stories, yeah. um, even if like selectively that means we're exposing something. I don't know. I think, I think a lot about, I'm curious if you've thought about this too, the, like the intersection of privacy and shame, like mm. where do they meet, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. um, did you think about that at all? Sort of like, do I not want to share this because I just want to keep it safe or because I'm actually like, I sort of feel ashamed of, of putting this out into the world. Right. I, I mean, honestly, in writing the book, I didn't really, um, 
I didn't draw many boundaries for myself. Like it felt, cause I, I just, I, it felt really important to me that I just like lean into the shame and like lean past it. And, right. um, even if I had to sort of like deal with the consequences of it later, um, which I, you know, now I am basically now that it's out <laughs> there, but, um, it felt so important to, um, to not hold back. Um, and it was like the things that I felt like I had really serious boundaries about where I like, I, I just had a very strong, like, will not go there feeling was like really about other people in my life, like, and protecting them. Um, mostly my son, who's almost four years old now. And like, I don't even mention his name in the book because it feels, and that was just like the, the, something that came to me and felt like I felt very strongly about, like, it didn't even feel right to put his name in the book because I felt like he's this other person who's entitled to his own story and his own identity and his own experience. And so it's, you know, it's interesting where like those boundaries cropped up for me. Like it really, it wasn't in protection of myself. It was in protection of other people. Um, but the shame has definitely like, there is shame. Like when I have conversations with family members who are like, I had to put your book down because it was too much or, you know, they tell me about, I had someone tell me about, um, you know, an 80 year old, um, male friend of hers who had really struggled through reading the book, like found it very shocking. And, you know, shame comes up immediately, like, you know, and it's very easy to trigger that feeling of like, I'm too much, I'm weird. Like, and that's after writing about sex for over a decade and like really like talking to people about their sex lives and like seeing the full range of you know, sexual experience and knowing like objectively, I'm not a weirdo. Like, you know, we all believe we're a little weirdos and we're not like, um, but it's very easy. It's very easy to trigger that feeling of shame. Yeah. I'd like to talk about that too. Shame specifically in reference to female desire. It, It was really, really interesting. I think you're like a few years older than I am, but I was like shocked and probably this is so common and I'm sure you've gotten this by now, but like the AOL sex chat exploration stuff, <laughs> like I did all of that. And, um, and interestingly, like we did have a different, ex- we had a very different, but sort of similar experience with it in that I think I too, I, I found out when I was young <clears throat> that my mother was raped and I mm. remember her saying something to me in telling me, I don't exactly know how old I was, but I think I was pretty young. Wow. <laughs> and I remember her telling me like, you know, honestly, he had a gun to her head and he was like that. She said that part was the scariest when he actually just had sex with me. I was relieved because I thought at least he's just getting what he wants now. Wow. And I feel like my both of my parents were actually my dad's gay, which I found out when I was like around 10. And I think both my parents were quite vocal about sex. Mm. And so I think in a way that like you... um the sort of rerouting of male desire in a way. Like I, I felt like when I was in those chat rooms, I was like genuinely actually super turned on by it. Like mm. I was doing the same thing. I was like, Oh, I'm playing a game. Like that's probably an old, like 70 year old yeah. man on the other side. And I'm 12, but like, right. we're both in on this. And I yeah. think, whereas you, I think did this thing where you were like performing what you thought men wanted. I actually really took mm-hmm. that on and like embodied that. Um, and actually right. was like very turned on by that desire. Um, but it is interesting the ideas of in both cases, I think, this idea of rerouting female mm-hmm. desire through men. Mm. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm sort of interested to hear like 
after you sort of made those realizations for yourself around that you were like projecting a lot of your own stuff onto yes. men, yeah. how that like circled back around in you, um, especially because I feel like you kind of became a mom at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like talking about like, what do you do with that desire now, especially when it sort of hits into realms that feel, you know, inappropriate and like rough gangbangy territory yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. For example, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I think like once, um, you know, there was that point where I realized, I mean, it was a gradual realization really, like over many years where I realized like, okay, I've, I've kind of approached, you know, looking at porn, being in chat rooms as this exploration of quote unquote straight male desire. I'm just trying to, you know, figure out what men want so I can be what men want. And then realizing like, you know, while watching porn that like, oh wait, hold on. (laughs) My hand is in between my legs. Like I'm not purely just like investigating, like I'm participating. (laughs) Like there's some, I'm obviously like taking enjoyment from this. Um, and that like, there's this cover story of investigating men's desire and because it's easier to say, and that's actually really common. Like there have been studies actually that show that young women often talk about watching porn in particular as like, um, a way to kind of study up and like learn about sex. Um, because it's safer. I think there's, there's truth to that and that people do look to sex to, you know, to porn, to look, to learn about sex. But I think it's also a cover story. It's a, it's a convenient, um, way to kind of cover up for one's own interest and desire as a woman in sex. Um, and so, you know, as I started to realize that, and as I began exploring my own desires, especially through porn, um, you know, it opened up a whole world for me of possibility where it wasn't just that I was trying to figure out men and their, you know, weird desires that it was like, I had my own weird desires and like, you know, that, that I wanted to explore those. And, um, but it was really getting towards marriage and motherhood where that like really kind of came to a head, um, which is so interesting because that's not how, I don't know that that's just not how these things are portrayed. Like I, I feel like, you know, (laughs) we don't talk about like sexual, discovery and revelation, like, like in pregnancy or, or, you know, after having a child, like we kind of, we desexualize moms and kind of assume that all, you know, meaningful sexual experiences and exploration happen before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was a turning point for me because, um, in so many ways I was like past that you know, ostensibly that point of like desirability of being like a young woman in your twenties and that there was in a weird way, something freeing about feeling a little irrelevant and like the standards (laughs) and ideals that I'd kind of labored under for so long, um, didn't apply as much. And so it was like, well, you're not, you know, (laughs) you're not going to fit that mold anyways. And so, um, that felt a little freeing. It felt like I got a little, I had a little space to kind of explore and be out, step outside of that. Um, and then also have the experience of like giving birth, being pregnant and experiencing my body and its potentials in a whole new way. Um, that was really not in service of men's desire at all. And so that was like, to me, that was the start of a new kind of relationship for me with my own, my own body and my own, desire that felt like it was like a new 
paradigm. Yeah. Do you ever think about, I mean, this is obviously like super hypothetical, but had you not had a baby or become a mother, um, how, like in a way, like you said, it sort of was like, oh, I can sort of see myself as a woman in this different way now, Mm -hmm. but without that, um, do you ever think about like where you might have gone in a different direction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some of that awakening happened like when I got into the relationship with my husband, um, Mm -hmm. because I, you know, I felt like I had the intimacy with him and trust where I could be vulnerable. I mean, I'd also just gotten to a point in my life where I was like more comfortable with the kind of vulnerability that at least for me is, um, necessary to actually experience authentic pleasure. And so I think, you know, like I'd started on that journey and I think in a lot of ways, like motherhood was just like a, a major push on that journey. But without that, um, I think, aging, honestly, even separate from, um, motherhood, like stepping into motherhood, like that, that process for a lot of women, I think, you know, it can be experienced in a lot of different ways. Like it can be experienced, you know, for many women, it's like traumatic and like, you know, alienating, like you're alienated from your own body as you're sort of like, you know, um, departing from the ideal, um, to whatever degree you're able to kind of meet the ideal before if you were. Um, and so I think, I I think there's an aspect to that that probably would have brought some of this up, um, even, even separate from having a kid. Yeah. 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 The vulnerability, that's a good point. I thought one of the most like poignant pieces of your book was you describing, getting an ultra or when you had a miscarriage and Mm -hmm. that you had like this phallic object with a condom yeah, (laughs) and like that in that moment you sort of realized that what you were chasing in sex was like this feeling of being in control and being powerful and that that was not the full extent of your experience and I feel like you didn't talk about it a ton but this idea of like what is the inverse of that right like what is what is that as far as what's the rest of the comprehensive nature of your sexuality as it relates to like sort of letting go and being vulnerable and relinquishing control. And, um, I feel like, yeah, that can sort of be accomplished in a myriad of different ways. But I, I don't know. I think it's unfortunate. I think a lot of women, I mean, and who knows like what, you know, femininity actually is or masculinity actually is, but we definitely live in a culture that like prioritizes quote unquote, masculine forms of power and value Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like how do we as women try to embody that you know what I mean right oh definitely Um, yeah I mean I think about that all the time the sort of like um it's hard to step outside of a framework where like power is kind of masculine or male you know and so it's like I think it's I think a lot of like for much of my 20s I think my impulse was to kind of like you know flip the tables on men and be like, yeah. well, you do this. Well, I can do this too. And, you know, without much paying much attention to like, do I want to do that? Like, is that what I actually want? Or am I just trying to like, um, achieve some kind of sexual, you know, equality in, in, you know, to the like sort of inverse of it. Um, and, you know, so I didn't feel like that panned out well for me. Like, um, trying to kind of like take on that stereotypical masculine role. Um, and similarly, like, you know, realizing that you've been sort of 
going for this sense of sexual control and power. Like, so what does it look like? Like, does it, does it mean doing the flip of that? Does it mean just like leaning totally towards vulnerability? Like, what does it mean to kind of be more incorporated? Um, you know, and not be in this kind of state of either or. Right. Yeah. I kept thinking as I was sort of reading these accounts of you kind of over the course of your life, you know, maybe relatively subconsciously, but like seeking these sorts of like rough sex power dynamic types Mm. of relationships and dynamics. And like, I think I've, I also did that for a long time. And I think it took me a long period of time to figure out the nuance of that, that like that dominance or power like something could look the same on paper, but mm-hmm. be coming from a very different place. Totally. Right? Yes. I love that. I mean, that's yes. totally, that's totally been yeah. my experience. I mean, I think like when I was kind of puzzling through this stuff at the point of being in my marriage where like, you know, there was a lot of authenticity and communication and, um, feeling like, okay, well, what is it that I'm kind of striving for here? Like, am I striving for, well, well now, um, I'm in this you know, equal relationship where there's like (laughs) no gender difference and there's, there's no sort of power differential, there's no power play. And we're just like two equal bodies (laughs) that are just rubbing up against each other. And there's no, like, no kind of (laughs) tension there, you know, like, (laughs) and then I came to like, well, no, like that sounds terrible. I don't want that. (laughs) Like that. And so I, you know, to me, like there's definitely like this wandering process, like a really like, you know, kind of pendulum swing of like, okay, power play, you know, and then like wholesome, like, you know, spiritual hippie, like no power differential, you know, sex. Um, and then coming more to the, towards this like middle place of like, um, being able to kind of experiment with all of that. And also within the context of power play, like, the huge difference of like engaging with that in the context of a relationship where you're communicating with each other about it in a very transparent and honest way. That's like just worlds apart from the kind of power dynamics that I was engaging with in my twenties where, you know, I was faking orgasms. I was like very performative and I was not, um, I was really trying to perform an effect for my partners as opposed to like being present and really communicating and, you know, having like an authentic exchange, like those things are worlds apart, like negotiated power exchange is so different from, um, that kind of like grasping for power within like a casual hookup, for example. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's dangerous. I mean, I've, I've seen situations again, where it's like, it looks the same on paper, but it's super different where like you can engage in that as a way to like gain more trust and gain more self-confidence and or like just totally abuse yourself and I know I've definitely done that it sounds like you've done that I mean so many women I feel like I know it's just interesting how we seek out these dynamics like as a way to teach ourselves that lesson in a way it's like I remember sitting in therapy and being like I know this is really toxic but like I'm there's something here that I'm trying to work through and figure right. out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's something that's so to me endlessly fascinating about sex. It's like, you know, one of the things I was really frustrated with as like a 20 something was like feeling like there were older women who were writing books that, that to me felt really like they were saying like, you shouldn't be having sex the way that you're having it. Like, you know, 
from women who have lived through their twenties and kind of gotten to the other side and are, and are saying like, you know, here are the lessons I've learned, like, you know, um, don't make these mistakes and, and feeling like everyone has to go on their journey. And like, you know, everyone, sometimes you do have to kind of go through those experiences where you, there is that something that's there that you're trying to sort through and understand. And like, um, for me, like sex is not going to look the same for your whole life. Like you're going to go through different phases and experiences and that you can learn all sorts of different things about yourself and about other people through sex. And like, sometimes that's kind of messy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about, I I feel like we all have a tendency in trying to actually like carve out equality for like all people and all experiences that we frame things as like, you know, everything is, we're trying to find the normal, like this is normal and that's normal. And I like, I wonder sometimes if that's the wrong strategy that like us are continual, trying to figure out like what is normal and natural mm-hmm. is counterproductive in yeah. some way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I struggle with that a lot, like in just like reading through feminist literature, like over the years. And, um, you know, obviously there are so many different sort of schools of thought around, um, you know, fantasy and desire and, you know, kink and like all of these things. And, and you'll find, Um, not just in feminism, but all over the place, like these different ideas about what good and healthy sex looks like um, that, you know, I think are really um, damaging, (laughs) you know, really damaging. Um, And I think I felt um, like, you know, speaking of shame, like I think a lot of shame that I experienced was around that sense of, you know, good and bad. Um, and, um, feminist, not feminist, like all of these things as it applied to sex. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I studied gender and sexuality in school. So I read like a lot of that, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff you quoted <laughs> in, yeah. your, in your book as well, and was really saturated by that. And I think I had a difficult experience cause I had this father who I loved and was quite close to, um, much more so than my mother even. And I think I had a very unique kind of healthy example of like what a man was or what Mm. masculinity was. Like I think gay men often are like both extremely powerful and sort of alpha in a way, but Mm. also not and in touch with their feminine side. Mm. And, and I felt like a lot of the, these sort of like feminist texts were also really, I don't know, carving out men and masculinity as something that was like dangerous and bad and, it took me a while to figure out like why that bothered me or why mm. I couldn't relate to it. Um, and I think, and then again, like having this experience, like it sounds like you had a really wonderful father as well. And like how we're navigating through this climate where, <clears throat> you know, and it's fair, like women have been treated poorly for a long period of time and have had to fight for equality and all of that. Um, but this struggle and sort of seeing, like, I feel like that affected you to some extent, like thinking like, oh shit, like men are these horrible kind of beasts and that it was like a journey toward like remembering that it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing with my dad that was like, um, I struggled with was like, you know, he was very much, um, you know, I don't know that he would identify as a feminist, but that he had these sort of pseudo feminist messages, um, right. that he would deliver when I was growing up and was very like emphatic about like things like, um, 
you know, a woman's most attractive feature is her brain and, you know, like had a very like, you know, nineties, like you go girl kind of (laughs) (laughs) attitude. And then when I found his, um, porn subscription to perfect10.com, it felt like this total, like the total flip of that, like, Oh wait, a woman's most attractive feature is her brain, but you're also subscribing to perfect10.com. Like, how do I make sense of this? Um, and you know, for me, there was like this long journey of trying to like make sense of how to reconcile those two things because both were like true reflections of who he was. Like it wasn't false what he was, you know, these values he was espousing around, you know, women's intelligence being important and even attractive. Um, and so it's like, I had to reconcile that, um, around him. And then I had to reconcile for myself, like my own seeming contradictions around being a feminist um, having these feminist beliefs and then also having like fantasies and sexual interests that played with power and, you know, submission and, um, and, you know, really played with male power and power differentials. And, um, so that, that kind of, um, making sense of like the sometimes divide between personal politics and fantasy and sexual interest was a huge one for me. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are about like the, you know, just the role general sexual repression comes into this. And I feel like sometimes we also like, we don't think we're sexually repressed as a Western society, because it's like better than other places. Um, But yet still like, I mean, I think about this all the time, like, what difference it might make, you know, if we got more slash better education as yeah. children about this and yeah. yes, from school, but also from our parents yes. and also from friends and like yeah. how much of our lives are spent like feeling around in the dark. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like totally, totally was, in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as, as far as this whole idea though, of male desire, like you, we're sort of trying to seek this out and trying to like get it. Did it, has it ever, have you had experience, like a lot of the experiences you described in your book were like, you know, I was just faking it. I was trying to be this thing that they wanted, but that actually wasn't turning me on. Um, and I'm curious if you had experiences where like male desire, maybe not expressed in those sort of like more pornographic realms, Mm -hmm. but like something about male hunger or desire was actually a turn on for you that there was like a part of that that was legitimately appealing. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think for a lot of my twenties, like it, you know, there was satisfaction, there was genuine satisfaction that I got from that dynamic of like being wanted and, um, you know, there, that's, that's real. Like, I think there's a real satisfaction to be gained, um, from, you know, experiencing someone's attraction to you. Like, so I think that shouldn't be discounted. Like that's a valid pleasure to take from sex. The thing was that it kind of stopped there for me, like in a lot of ways, like there was that excitement and pleasure, um, that I got from that, that satisfaction, but, um, that's like a pretty limited experience of, of pleasure within the realm of sex. Like it, um, you know, for me now it's been like more this expansion of that. So it's like the, like feeling genuine, authentic pleasure around, um, male desire. And then also 
feeling more in touch with my own desire, my body, bodily sensations, like all of that. So it's just like this much more expansive experience that's not so like narrowed and, and restricted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes think too, like, I mean, how much of these, obviously, like how much of these structures, patriarchal structures, um, gender inequality was like created as a response to female sexual power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you're trying to tamp it down and yeah, yeah. keep yeah. it under control. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel, so do you feel like after you sort of had a lot of these realizations, um, and again, it was just like so interesting that then you became a mom and I guess probably experienced a different, to a different extent, this sort of shaming around sexual embodiment at that phase. Um, right. And, yeah, I don't know. I just I I always I always think about like like you said like what is the alternative structure here? Like mm-hmm. what who would we be if we were unaffected by the culture and right. Um yeah, like just trying to unpack that and do you think that's actually plausible to take right. that off of us? <laughs> right. Right. Like I I mean I think there's something to be said for like that kind of like critical self-awareness and reflection, but I don't, for me at least personally, um, I don't think it's possible to like just fully excise like all sort of impacts of patriarchy and like, you know, from my own brain, um, I feel like we are all just products of our culture and, um, you can play with that. Right. And, you know, seek something that feels like truly authentic and your own. But, um, for me, it's like, I derive so much meaning from the culture that I grew up in and like, especially in the realm of like sexual fantasies and stuff, there's so much that's just like symbolism that's, that's drawn from the world in which we live. And, um, so I think, it's hard to fully escape it. Um, I think for me, like the most important thing has been just like having a critical awareness about like those, you know, dominant heteronormative sexual scripts and just like, like to, to see them as they are, to see what they are um, and to question them a little bit. And which doesn't mean that you escape it fully. Like you're still in relationship to it and sometimes in reaction to it. But um that opens up a much more interesting space, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think about too, and this is like so existential, but like if, you know, there's a lot about these patriarchal dynamics and conventional dynamics that we have that are like horrible and abusive. But I I also wonder if there's something about like, is there a reality in which women could, for example, feel extremely sexual empowered and totally embodied in their desire but not necessarily, like, in the position of power in every sexual relationship. Like, are there structures in which powerful women could also, like, relinquish control and not necessarily yeah. express that through, like, being a dominatrix or something like that, you right, know? Right, right. Um, yeah, I think there's, like, that nuance, I feel like, is often lost, that we think it's either or. Right. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, it is like if you think about like if we lived in a culture that like did not have this power differential, just like so fully built into it, what would our even like notions of power be or like what would like the models of power be? You know, Um, it's super appealing to kind of think 
it's, it's appealing to think about escaping that and, and what would like power play and power dynamics look like, like without that backdrop, like without that sort of context. Um, because I think there is something that is like pretty essential, like often to sex about power exchange and, you know, that, that, you know, it's kind of, it's possible to think about a world in which, um, we're kind of freed up from the boxes that we currently, or the roles that we currently have around those power dynamics. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like would, I don't know. We have these ideas obviously about like quote unquote womanhood or femininity that we see as like repressive and lacking in control and lacking in power, you know, Mm -hmm. again, because we see masculine traits as powerful. Um, but I wonder, like, because I feel like sometimes we, again, we do this 180. Um, I found this article that you wrote about the what's that book, King Warrior, Magician uh-huh. Lover, um, <laughs> yeah. which I actually quite liked. And I, oh, but yeah. at the same time, very much take issue with exactly what you take issue with, which is this like overemphasis on masculinity without mm-hmm. the sort of, um, like, to me, it feels like. I don't know how safe it is for a woman to like be fully embodied in this kind of feminine essence, unless she also is in her masculine and like Uh can set boundaries and take care of herself and yada, yada. And the same for men in my experience, like being dominant and like in, you know, a powerful position is dangerous. I feel like, unless you are in touch with those more sort of feminine qualities. Right. Um, but I'm just you I feel like you're very sort of in the pop culture world of this and in this sort of like feminist world and the, and we're in the me too world and all this stuff and do you feel like there is some confusion on behalf of men too as yeah. to like I don't know like I'm being told I'm supposed to be less manly yeah. but like also that doesn't feel right you know what right. I mean like it's unfair for all of us Totally no I totally yeah. do I mean I think that's part of why I've been drawn to like writing about the world of like the manosphere or like men's retreats and like, you know, all of that is because, um, I recognize the confusion that I think a lot of men experience around, um, gender roles now, you know, like, like where a lot of men feel like the rules are being rewritten and they feel very uncertain and, you know, they're looking for some guidance, you know, and, Like, to me, the thing that's really unfortunate is um, with a book like that, you know, to me, it doesn't feel it feels so um, tied to these like really traditional and even like prehistoric notions of masculinity in a way that it doesn't feel like it's allowing for um, a more expansive sense of masculinity. You know, oftentimes in the way that those things are talked about, um, you know, it feels like we're, we're, we're really kind of trapped. Um, and, um, and so to me, that feels really unfortunate. Like to me, that leans in, in the opposite, um, direction that like I (laughs) would like to go in, which is like a real, like loosening, um, where like to me, um, I don't know. It's just kind of like exploding the whole thing. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> blow it all up. Like, yeah. I mean, as if you could, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, if you just look at like some, like the best selling on Amazon, for example, books around gender, um, a lot of them are written for men and a lot of them are of that sort of nature where they're like really trying to give guidance, um, to men around 
masculinity, finding themselves. Who are you? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I wondered, I was thinking, I like wrote this note down as I was listening to your book that like this, so much of this reflects whether it's like we watch porn and we just like assume that's truth or we like read this book and assume that's a hundred percent truth. Like we have such a media literacy problem. Yes. Yeah. I feel like when I was like reading your article, you know, to me, when I was reading that book, it was like, I'm taking that information in combination with like seven other million things. Right. But most of the time people aren't just like you weren't when you were watching porn, you were like, that's the truth. Um, and it's hard because then it's also like, who do we, I mean, I don't want to necessarily blame anyone, but like, you know, it's sort of like thinking like, oh, Trump's the enemy. Like, is it really Trump or is it the people that are following him blindly? You know, uh-huh. like at what point are we sort of outsourcing our personal responsibility or like ability to discuss things openly? Mm-hmm. Um, and that maybe that's more of the problem than mm-hmm. these books or portrayals of sex or gender in general. Well, and it's like, I feel like those books or porn or whatever it is, like, I feel like they are just like feeling the, they're filling the, um, the gap there that's like left. I mean, it's like easy to point to like sex education, but like, you know, I, (laughs) I do think that like, you know, as, as one basic sort of aspect of this, it's like, um, you know, we're so ill-equipped to kind of like, for example, sex ed for me, and I was lucky enough to even have it, which was like very lucky. It didn't talk about porn at all. As far as I recall, um, it, de- it definitely didn't talk about pleasure. Um, you know, it was very just like how Scientific, to prevent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, prevent a pregnancy, prevent STIs. And that was yeah. that. And so like, that is horrific. I mean, that's just like, that is no way to equip a young person, um, you know, for <laughs> adult life and sexual life and like, God. So I think, you know, in terms of like, yeah, media literacy is huge. Like for, for me, it was, porn was a huge one where it was like, I just had such a literal interpretation of it that I just thought like, here's the guidebook. This is what men want. Let me do this. Um, as opposed to having a more complex, you know, a nuanced understanding of fantasy and how fantasy works. And, um, So, you know, and I think there's something similar with books like that. Like, I think, I think, you know, they're filling a gap and, um, you know, oftentimes it's very easy to just like cling to something like that as a guidebook, um, and, you know, follow it to a T and, um, as opposed to having like a more sort of like expansive and critical relationship with that stuff. Yeah. Or just that it's like ever evolving. I really appreciated that part of your book that you sort of kept coming back to as well, because like, we're all so hungry for understanding and for meaning and for pleasure and for love. And like, it doesn't, it's unfortunate, but it doesn't surprise me that we cling to these different things as like the answer. And we don't give ourselves enough space to recognize that maybe these things are supposed to change and supposed to evolve over time. And maybe like there's one year that it's like really important for you to like figure out your masculinity and then, you know, you move on to this other stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, if, do you ever, do you ever talk to like any of the men that you were involved with in the past in your twenties or like wish you could sort of go back and have like just sit down and have like a genuine like a conversation about like so what was going on here and like 
you know? I haven't done that. I mean, I've reached out to some people who are in the book, like ahead of publication, just to like let mm-hmm. them know that they were going to be in the book. <laughs> um, but I haven't, um, I don't think I've talked to anyone after writing about them to kind of like get their take on like what I'm sort of revealing about where I was at at that point, yeah. you know? Um, but I think that would be really interesting. Um, I, I do have that. I've thought at times like, Oh my God, if I could just like go back in time and be that girl again, like all of the things that I could have done differently to just like have had a better time to have connected with these people who were for the most part, like really wonderful people, you know, and it feels like all of these missed opportunities of like deeper connection. Right. But at the same time, like that's not, that's not what I was ready for at that time. It's not what I wanted. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, (laughs) I think, I think it would be really valuable to, um, to talk to someone about like, you know, I mean, so often I think in these kinds of like, um, especially like casual exchanges in your twenties, like, um, it's so easy to just really not know what's going on for the other person. Like, you know, I've written my sort of version of it, but like the men that I've written about, like certainly have their own version and who knows to what degree they were performing in their own way and had their own private experience that I was not let in on at all. Right. And also how that's shaped and formed by the culture. Like, a lot of I feel it maybe mine I forget but like in health class when they came to talk about sex there was a lot of like okay the girls go in this room and the boys right like we were sort of from the onset taught that although we're engaging in this activity together we're not supposed to talk about it yeah (laughs) Yeah. like that that's and that's what and they're teaching you that like the people who are supposedly like helping you to navigate the world are teaching you that lesson right up front before it even begins. Right. Like, yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Do you, have there been men that have read your book that have reached out to you? Like I, I, it's interesting having this podcast with my friend, which is, I mean, I guess kind of like girly in a way it's two women like talking about their sexual experience and sex. And I can't tell you like how many, guy listeners we have Mm. um and there's always this sentiment of like thank you for one having these discussions so that like i can understand like what's going on in your brains and also i think like our brains are different than like mainstream culture brains so it's like a breath of fresh air (laughs) to some extent but just like that feeling of you know we ask for questions and answer questions and stuff and it's you can just see how desperate people are to share honestly about this mm-hmm. stuff and how yeah. rare you know like the whole dating world is not built around like honesty and yeah. vulnerability and authenticity right um yeah. right <laughs> yeah I mean I've I definitely have heard from men who've read the book interesting like I I think I've mostly heard from older men like men mm. um like 50s and up like I heard even from like um I feel like it was like a 75 year old man who was like married and was like, I'm still trying to figure out women. <laughs> and like, thanks, yeah. you know, thanks for your book because it helped to demystify, you know? Um, so there definitely has been a little bit of that, like that kind of curiosity from men about like, you know, in reading a woman's experience, um, and like a frank accounting of her experience with men. Um, 
Yeah, there definitely has been that. And, and like, in terms of what you're saying, like about the hunger to talk about this stuff, like that was my experience. Um, when I was doing more traditional, like sex reporting and talking to a lot of people about their sex lives, like I talked to so many men who were just like desperate to talk and to like open up and tell me everything because, and often it was like stuff that they'd never told anyone before in their entire lives. And like, here I am a total stranger, but it's just like the context of a journalist, you know, with a reporter's notebook out, like that changes everything where it's just like, it is like a framework of permission. Like this, like I am asking you to tell me about your experiences and like, here's the floor basically. And, um, just the huge sense of relief that people have in being given that opportunity. Because I think even like in, in therapy, it's like oftentimes people don't feel like they can kind of talk about this stuff. It's so silenced. Um, yeah. People are so hungry, men and women for that outlet. Yeah. Do you feel like you've also seen too, like, I don't know, sometimes I think we under, like we underestimate the, the actual danger of sexual repression and that like, like that people, you know, how many of these, you know, in ter- and again, in terms of the like things can look uh, the same, but be very different. Yeah. Like the experiences that I've had with men, it's like, I think I've engaged with men that straight up like didn't trust and hated women and were like enacting anger. Yeah. But then also men who sort of could engage in a lot of those same sorts of like dominant power play types of things, but worse coming from a position of like, I actually love women and care for yeah. women and I'm doing this at least in part because like these women want it. Yes. Um, but like without talking about this more openly, how much are we opening ourselves up to like actual harm? Right. Um, you know? Right. Well, I mean, when you don't even like, yeah, when you haven't even like sort of, uh, learned about those differences that you're talking about. Like when it doesn't even occur to you that there is a distinction there between like a man who (laughs) hates women and is performing this and a man who loves women and is performing it in a context in which it's wanted, like, you know, where you're not even sort of, um, sort of, yeah. When you're not even like pausing to, to think about that because it's so not part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is like, um, I think my experiences with like in my twenties with that kind of like rough sex and power play and stuff, like, um, you know, I think there were, there was like at least one interaction that I feel like, you know, was pretty dangerous. Um, and in part because there was alcohol involved, but also because I think there was a level of, um, I don't know if hatred is, is the right word, but maybe, um, yeah. you know, certainly antagonism and, um, you know, but, um, yeah. And I don't, I don't think that that's all that uncommon either, unfortunately. No. Yeah. I was sort of, and maybe I'm like wading into like difficult territory, but I was sort of disappointed by that attack that happened recently in those like Asian spas and like, okay, sure, like, let's talk about the Asian, anti-Asian racism piece. But to me, there was also, like, a conversation that I felt like was sort of begging to be had around, like, this man who at least claims is killing these women because they sort of engage his sexual fantasies. And he was raised in this, like, really repressed, you know, fundamentalist Christian home and the violence against sex workers. And, like, Mm -hmm. we're just so uncomfortable wading into, I feel like, any territory that involves sex that... I 
Like uh, other things are difficult, but seem easier than sex. Sex, I uh-huh. think, still remains this like very uncomfortable thing to talk about. And like, what would it be like to protect, you know, sex workers? And um, I don't know. I get I get frustrated sometimes because I feel like sometimes the, we we repress the conversations that about we the might. sexual aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think like yeah. talking about the sexual aspect of that, like t- like within the context too of like racism and hate, racial hatred, you know, I think, um, is a conversation that a lot of people are not equipped for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or ready for. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you now, as your son is growing up, um, and having written this book and reflected on like sort of what you learned, I'm, I'm sure on the one hand, we can all sort of be presumptuous and saying like, oh, I'm going to do it differently and I'm going to tell him everything or tell her everything. And, um, do you ever feel sort of conflicted actually (laughs) now as a mom of like, well, actually maybe I don't want to like expose him to all of these things and like which direction to go in that kind of I mean, it's interesting because he's so young right now. So it's like, um, like right now it's like very basic age appropriate stuff, you know, um, about just like boundaries, like stuff like I don't, um, I never like instruct him to like hug a relative. It's like, you know, it's, it's much more, you know, just like teaching about consent in these like subtle ways that are really age appropriate. And I really look forward to having those conversations down the line. But I also like, you know, he's four now. So it's like easy for me to say, um, like, what will it be like when he's 12, 13, 14? Like, um, I want to say that I'm very excited about it, like that I can't wait because, you know, there is that excitement of I'm not going to get it right. Like, I I just I'm not going to get it right. But there is no right. But I'm so excited to try to have honest conversation with him, um, that, um, you know, (laughs) at least addresses some of the gaps that I feel were there for me growing up, both at school and at home. Um, and you know, if I can at least sort of take that step in the right direction, I feel pretty good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, like, having a book like this, like, it'll be interesting. Like that is a little bit more intimidating. The idea of like how to talk to him about the book or like whether he reads it eventually or, um, and what his own experience will be like having a mom who is out there in that way. And like, what does that mean for him? Is it embarrassing? Because like, his friends like <laughs> find an article that I wrote right. online and like, you know, so there are a lot of things that, you know, um, it's hard to know kind of how it'll play out. Yeah. Yeah. What are those gaps that you feel like you were missing? I mean, it's so interesting for you too, because it was like, yes, growing up, but then I feel like you also spent such a great deal of time, like as a young adult in the culture as well. And even that was sort of like missing <laughs> or failing or lacking right. in some way. Yeah. Um, so what, what are like, if you could go back and say like, I wish these are sorts of things that I knew or learned mm-hmm. about what were those? Um, I mean, porn would be a huge one, like, uh, talking about porn is huge. And I think will be like, just even more important, um, when he's a teenager, just because of the, you know, accessibility and stuff. Um, I think that like for my parents, like it was just kind of starting to be a thing. And so I don't think that they kind of had the understanding of like, um, what it would mean, like how available it would be, how much that would be a backdrop of my sexual coming of age, you know? 
but I, I have that knowledge. And so I want to, you know, I want to try to have those conversations with him about porn, about, um, I mean, I want to talk to him about my experience as a journalist, like reporting on porn sets. Like, you know, I want to tell him like, this is what I've observed about the construction of fantasy. Like what you see on screen is not the full story of what happens behind the scenes. Like, let me tell you about, you know, the negotiations around consent and boundaries that happen beforehand. Let me tell you about like, you know, when they call cut and they pause for lube, but you don't see that on camera, you know, like all those things. Um, so (laughs) my poor son, it's like, I'll be (laughs) the mom who insists on telling him all about her (laughs) experiences reporting on porn sets. But you know, that's the kind of thing that I want him to understand and, um, that I think should be taught in schools and, um, and also understanding fantasy, like how fantasy functions, like, um, what it means, what it doesn't mean, like how it can be interpreted. Um, that's, huge. Cause I feel like I just spent decades trying to, um, puzzle that stuff out for myself. Um, which, you know, I think to some degree, like we're all going to kind of have to go on a journey on our own, but I think you can better set young people up for that journey. Yeah. Do you think that women too, like I think about if I could go back, sometimes I look at pictures of myself at like 13, sort of like pre losing my virginity, but like kind of starting to figure it out. And I'm just, I, I, I look at myself and I feel like I like developed pretty early and like, I had no idea like what body I was in kind of like, there was Mm. such a disassociation from like, I just, I feel like women like, and you know, specifically maybe for women, like are not taught about their power in very interesting ways, like Mm. to the point where I wonder how we might get in ourselves into trouble because we're not equipped with like the full story of like the power of the feminine body and like, you know, that we are beautiful and that men do desire us and, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of weird whitewashed, like, and it's weird because how do you really, I don't know how to tell women like girls about that specifically, but I do see that that was a big gap for me. Like I didn't recognize that I had more power than I realized, I Mm, guess. Um, And like, how might that have set me up differently moving forward as far as like knowing my worth and knowing Mm. what was okay and not okay. Right. Um, Well, it's interesting too. I can see how like parents might not want to like, tell you about that power, (laughs) you know, like they're like, Oh, maybe if we don't tell her, she won't find out. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I mean, no one ever talked to me about my body. Like, I mean, at all, like, (laughs) I mean, it was literally like the extent of talking about my body as a teenager was like, you know, or in middle school was like, you know, going through puberty and like the basic facts of that. But like, you know, that's where the conversation ends. I mean, that's the problem across the board is it's just like, it's pregnancy prevention, STI prevention. Um, here's what happens when you get your period. And then it's like, eh, and then we're kind of abandoned and left to basically learn via pop culture. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I feel like all of my like learning about, we need education about relationships, you know, um, like (laughs) none of that happens. And so for me, it was like, I watched reality TV to try to understand like how dating love and sex happened, um, which is a terrible educator. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like also so much of my education, sexual education was framed around like how to say no 
and mm. there was this sort of like I'm reject I have to reject this stuff yeah. and like there was no training on like how to say yes to something even right. or like how to feel good about wanting something or how to see desire as maybe not always harmful like right. I don't know we we were and it's weird because it's like you want to warn kids about the reality of something, but to yeah. what extent does that then become too much? You know, yeah. like it's the same as like I remember learning about in health class, they were teaching us that like marijuana would kill you. Yeah. And I would go home and my dad was like, Meh, like, right. <laughs> I mean, don't be responsible, <laughs> but also like it's not going to kill you. And if you ever want some, like, come to me. <laughs> you know, it's just I we take those I don't know. We take those sorts of warnings, I think, sometimes, like, too far, and we're so stripped of, like, yeah. what may be the actual, like, pleasure and happiness and, like, yeah. joy of sex. Yeah. Well, so there's this, um, I think it's Michelle Fine who wrote this um, paper decades ago, I think now, about the missing discourse of desire when it comes to mm. sex education. And it's just about how there is a missing discourse about desire. We don't talk about pleasure and particularly when it comes to girls, like we don't talk to them about their bodily feelings and sensation and hunger and desire. And we don't talk about like what they might want. Um, it's like you're saying, it's like all about how to say no. It's all about how to be a guardian and a gatekeeper around sexuality. And, um, so it's, it, yeah, it's just so much the emphasis on, protection, um, right. and guarding against, but, but that doesn't equip you to sort of start thinking about what you actually want yeah. and, um, how to think about your own desires. Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird moment for me. Cause I feel like I, I, it was always there, but it, it took me a while to recognize how frequently, I was experiencing sex from the male position. And again, mm. it was like a slightly different from your experience, maybe in the sense that that was actually turning me on. Like mm -hmm. I worked out a way to like get turned on by what men were turned on by or what I thought they were mm. turned on by. Um, but it is, I, you know, I do think like a lot of, I, I, I'm not trying to reject that anymore or pathologize that anymore mm -hmm. in a way that I was like, I was like truly, cause I don't, I don't have any desire to be a man. I, I feel quite masculine in a lot of ways, but like, I don't want a penis. So why do I keep imagining I have a penis in a sexual huh. situation? Yeah. Um, but interestingly, like I, you know, I'm not pathologizing it, but also I feel like I've had to sort of like, oh, right. Okay. So what is it like to experience sex? as a woman from uh -huh. a woman's perspective and you know it's it's crazy to me how like it was so refreshing to kind of <laughs> hear your take on it because it's like okay someone else too it's like we don't know how to how to have these things within us really right well um, that's so interesting to not like have a framework for desire such that like um like the most readily available framework is is taking on that perspective of a man and um like, to me, that sounds, like, wonderfully adaptive to, like, be able to right. do that and actually experience pleasure and actually be turned on. Um, and I think that there are so many different ways that women adapt um, and, you know, find sort of routes to pleasure, right? Like, despite that, um, despite the lack of models, you know, to turn to around a woman's desire, like a, a, des a woman as a desiring subject, what does right. that even look like? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Do you think about moving forward too, since you have this perspective of evolution, do you ever think that like in another 30 years, you <laughs> might write another book about like from point, you know, <laughs> late thirties to wherever? <laughs> Could be. I mean, honestly, that's, that is the thing like where, when I ended the book, it like, I wanted it to be very clear. Like, this is not like I have arrived and right. I, figured that's it that. out. I figured it all out. So like smooth right. sailing from here on out, like, no, like we are, you know, we, like I say in the book, we arrive and arrive and arrive again. Like it, you, <laughs> life shifts and changes. And I do think that you get to, you know, I feel like I did arrive in my thirties at a point of greater, um, you know, self-confidence and security and all these things, but there's still so much that like continues to be in flux and that continues to change. And, um, you know, I think we're sold all sorts of like false notions of like, you arrive, you get married, you have a kid and then there you are. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who has, you know, lived past 40, then can report back what it's like seeing friends go through divorces, like friends having, you know, spouses who become ill, you know, like life, it like, there are just, there are no certainties, there are no, you know, permanent sort of arrivals, like it is an ongoing journey. And so you have to just kind of be open to knowing that you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know where it'll take you. Yeah. Do you also feel like, I mean, this can apply to sexual embodiment and identity, but also to all things that in some way it's like, we're not actually becoming something new, but like becoming more, we're, I always find myself like, you know, I feel like I knew myself pretty well actually at 15. Honestly, <laughs> I, I say all the time, I say my truest self is my, is 13 year old me. And I feel like when I am being truest to myself, I am channeling that 13 year old girl, you know? And so it's like, there is that sense of like, you know, you're returning to yourself. Like for me, it feels like there is this way in which like there was a self that kind of existed that I can kind of, that I kind of can kind of like reach back to who was like existed prior to like just like the whole like onslaught of cultural like interference. And so she wasn't like, you know, she wasn't untouched because of course she'd lived 13 years in this world, but that there was, there's something, there's just like this innocent essential essence there that I, you know, I feel like sometimes I can tap into and I feel most like myself. Right. And so it is interesting to think of that, that like, even as an adult, like in your thirties, that you can be reaching backward and finding, um, like some, you know, wisdom and truth in that little girl. Yeah. 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 And I, I think, I, I think back to myself around that age too. And that like, yes, there was a lot of truth there, but it was very almost superficial. And, and sometimes Mm -hmm. I think that like this journey that we're on is to like, get back to that place, but in a much more embodied, Mm -hmm. intentional way, you know? Right. Um, yeah. That all of these, like, you know, and that, and I think that's also like, it's so important that we like this pathology, like pathologizing of desire is so harmful, I think, because like, to me, I think we need just need to move toward these things. And like, even if they're scary or unconventional or like, as long as you're not actually harming someone, like there's something there, there's like content there in what you're desiring and what your curiosity is and what you're moving toward that is real and legitimate. And, 
um, I don't know, I hope more people can see that for themselves and like stop punishing themselves for what they're interested in or curious right. about. Because I think it's like, it's more than just that. I think there's something else there that it's yeah. trying to show us and teach us about. Absolutely. Yeah. I think like our obsessions, whether it's like in the sexual realm or not, like can teach us so much about ourselves and that like leaning into that. Yeah. Can be very illuminating. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Tracy. This was really fun. Um, if you could let everyone know where I'm like holding this random feather, um, if you could let everyone know where to, where to find you, um, and learn more about your work. And then I also ask everyone at the end of the episode, um, if they could recommend one or two books that were like super instrumental and uh, meaningful to you in your life, what would they be? Sure. Um, so you can find my work and my book at tracyclarkflory.com. Um, and two books that were really influential. Um, the first one that immediately comes to mind is, um, Sally Tisdale's talk dirty to me, um, which is, um, you know, I would call it a sexual memoir, I suppose. And then a more recent book that I really loved, um, is by Claire Dederer. I hope I'm saying her last name, right? I'm probably not, um, called love and trouble. Um, and it's kind of about a, a, a middle-aged, you know, sexual kind of reckoning and, and awakening, um, that was really beautiful and, um, brutally honest. Yeah. Amazing. I love both of those. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I highly recommend Tracy's book, Want Me. Um, you will not be disappointed. I think you will be quite enthralled <laughs> and enraptured by it to some extent, as I was. Um, if you would like to join our Patreon community where you will get access to lots and lots of different opportunities to meet each other and to spend more time with me, um, we have a book club, a Discord server, I host workshops, etc., t-shirts, stickers, contact list, lots of shit that I always forget, playlists, um, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is the place to find all of that. Um, please, if you ever have anything to say, a guest you think I should have on the podcast, a song you think I should play on the podcast, any thoughts about the show in general or about a specific episode, I love hearing from all of you, whether it's via Instagram at Anya.Kotz or an email AnyaKotz at gmail.com. It's always nice to kind of uh, put some faces to this big black anonymous box room room that I'm speaking into, <laughs> which is strange. You're like, you guys have a relationship with me, but I don't necessarily have a relationship with you um, unless you reach out. And in which case, then we do and we can talk to each other. So always love hearing from you. I'm going to play you out with Feeling Good by Nina Simone because <laughs> why not? <laughs> On so many different levels, this song is fucking amazing. Um, I will catch you next time. Thank you for being here, as always. Sending much love to all of you. Thank you for spending this time with me. Catch you next time. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me Ooh, ooh, ooh.
It's a new day, it's a new life. 